0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Axis, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Benjamin Volfish, a prolific music composer whose credits include Shazam, Blade Runner 2049, and Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. In our conversation, we discuss a number of topics, from the mentorship received from friend and fellow film composer Hans Zimmer, Ben's creative experience working on my favorite movie of 2017, A Cure for Wellness, the haunting role of music in films like It and It Chapter 2, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Ben, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm incredibly excited. There's once more a million ways we could begin our conversation, but I thought I would ask you a little bit about the early inspirations that your favorite composers offered you, and then as you were starting out finding your own musical identity. Quote, As a kid, I remember getting the LP for John Williams' ET score and trying to break down the piano piece that plays over the end coda. I didn't know it yet, but wanted to understand why those sevenths deliver a sense of hope and melancholy all Mixed in, close quote. So I was wondering, why was composing the right way for you into the world of movies?
1: Oh, thank you, man. I mean, I, I was so lucky to grow up in a family of musicians where just the act of creating music was just day-to-day life for my parents and my grandparents. You know, my dad would practice the cello, still does, for, for many hours every day. And and I think my grandfather, Peter, he, he who died when I was, I think, 14, he just had this approach to playing the piano, which was all about singing and line and and emotion. And there was always this kind of feeling of my dad and my grandpa would play chamber music together professionally, and they'd be rehearsing all the time at home, and then there'd be a big dinner afterwards. So music, and not just listening to music, but actually going through the process of working on music, was always this massive part of my everyday family experience. And for me, the piano has always been... Well, basically, I annoyed a lot of piano teachers as a kid, because I would never practice what they were putting in front of me. There was always this love of discovering harmonies and, and and improvising and finding a way to voice whatever emotion it was I had inside as, as a kid, you know, using very primitive means, of course. But there was just that kind of excitement I always felt when I discovered a new chord, often by accident or a new chord progression and would spend, and sometimes that would be as simple as like in the Moonlight Sonata of Beethoven, that incredible tritone movement he does just before the, the the melody starts. I remember spending hours just trying to understand why that created a certain sort of tension and release There's a language there which over so many decades, through so many genius master composers over the over the centuries it's, it's evolved and evolved and we're standing on the shoulders of giants when we put pen to paper and, and write something for an orchestra especially when that music is so connected to narrative and I think what lit my imagination on fire was growing up in the 80s and hearing those unbelievable scores of John Williams Star Wars, E.T. Superman, Indiana Jones I mean you can just go on and on it's wonderful because I share that with so many colleagues who grew up in that time you know we, we have this sort of shared experience of awe and wonder and to this day that never goes away we're we're so lucky to be alive, where there's new John Williams music coming out every two or three years you know new Star Wars score coming out this year it always inspires a sense of wonder in me and his music you know, draws on so much incredible literature from the likes of Prokofiev and Wagner and Mahler, Stravinsky and Messiaen at times in terms of orchestration. There's just so much richness there. And I feel very lucky that you know, a lot of my early experiences were in the classical world. You know, I studied to be a concert pianist for many years and went on to do a lot of conducting uh, away from film you know, just peeling in the concert hall. And all those experiences were just so instrumental to me when I started to focus all of my attention on, on writing for the movies, which I feel so fortunate to be able to do now for a living. All these things kind of, I think, have their root in that early childhood just wonder, I've, I, I felt, and still feel, whenever I hear the music of John Williams and Sylvester and Goldsmith, all, all those guys who just were killing it in those, in those 80s and 90s decades. Mm-hmm.
0: I think listeners should also know that before becoming a composer yourself, you had an experience with orchestration, which I think is a fundamental part of the entire music world for movies. And before talking about movies specifically, I was curious to ask you a little bit about your process selecting projects and the emotional response you may have when receiving a screenplay or watching a first edit, depending on when you're brought on. About it, you have this to say, quote, Whenever you start any movie, it's important to start with a white canvas to find the inner truth." of that particular story. What that truth can sound like." Close quote. So I was wondering, what what do you look for when you're choosing to take on a project? And once you do begin work, how do you go about organizing early ideas that represent your direct response of what you imagine the movie will feel like?
1: I love to take on projects where I feel like it might be something I've never done before. And that process of discovering a new technique sometimes paying homage to your heroes. So for example, last year I was asked to do a big band score for a movie called King of Thieves, and it wasn't always gonna be a big band score. It's, it's a heist movie, it's a true story about the Hatton Garden diamond heist that happened in London a few years ago, where some very audacious pensioners got together for one last hurrah and, and robbed a, a diamond safe by drilling through the concrete wall. It's almost a comedy how much of a farce that story is, but we wanted to enliven those characters with their youth. And they were true geezer gangsters in in the 60s when they were all in their 20s and 30s. And when you think about the movies of that time, you know, Michael King was starring in this film, King of Thieves, but his early films, you know, Italian Job, etc. you don't need to list them, we all know them. And I remember hearing that music of Lalo Schifrin and Quincy Jones, Henry Mancini as a kid, and just, I loved how confident and fun that music is. I, I just have a distinct memory of celebrating just the swagger on the screen in a way, and using individual musicians so you'd feature Morris Murphy or the unbelievable brass players or whoever it was, and create this kind of musical equivalent of of where they're at. So anyway, the big the bigger point there is I've never done that before. And it was one of those things where you get to tap into a memory as a child or something that you love. And then as an adult, you know, having gone through many, many years of, of developing your own sound and and, and techniques and, and so on, you then return to the purity of that childhood love of something. And, and that same thing happened with Blade Runner. You know, I was so lucky when Hans... Invited me into into that project, you know, as as his partner, and it again tapped into an obsession I had as a kid with synthesizers, and. With the music of Angelis and Jean-Michel Jarret and, and and also, frankly, you know, growing up in the '80s, this is when people were so experimental with production techniques. You know, with you know, you have to remember in the '80s there were these pioneers of production, like you know, in the air tonight, that snare drum, the gated reverb, those things, which often happen by accident. This was a time where electronic music was part of the mainstream. And um, anyway, point is, I grew up loving that sound. So getting that chance to be in that world, even though it's something I had not really done before was a huge joy. So, I mean, the bigger the bigger question really is how do I select projects? It's it's honestly about when you sit down with a filmmaker and just start talking and does it feel like we could partner on something and I genuinely offer something good enough for their project. Is that something I feel like I, I could offer them something that lives up to whatever it is they're creating? And if that is the case, I'll embrace that opportunity. Project like A Cure for Wellness with Gore Verbinski was one of those incredible moments where my dear friend and mentor, he very kindly kind of engineered that relationship. He introduced us and started a process which ended up with me scoring the film. And that was like going to film school in so many ways. You know, Gore insisted that I was with him in his cutting facilities for about nine months. I set up my writing room literally next to his cutting room and we would interact pretty much every day, in fact, and have this back and forth that, you know, was all about what happens if we don't use temp and we start with hours of music written away from picture, which was then cut to picture and then refined and then turned into a spoke score. It's a very long form process. I mean, in hindsight, I realize now that what I learned from being so close to Gore for that amount of time was so invaluable. You know, I came out of there thinking like a filmmaker more than as a composer. I'd like you to go to Switzerland and bring Mr. Pembroke back to us. What we offer here is a process of purification away from precious, the mutton world you plan to take mr. Pembroke back with you is that a problem he's a patient (laughs) not a prisoner
0: well, that segues perfectly because A Cure for Wellness was the movie I wanted to ask you about first. It is an incredibly underrated movie. It was my favorite movie of 2017. And I hope that anyone listening who still hasn't seen it goes and checks it out. So just to provide listeners with some context, the story follows an ambitious young executive by the name of Lockhart, who sent to retrieve his company CEO from a kind of a mysterious wellness center in the Swiss Alps. And soon after he gets there, he suffers a car crash and leaves him trapped. And he now is a patient himself of this mysterious sanitarium. So you just touched on it, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about this, you know, nine-month process and the evolution of the score, allowing for the music to organically emerge. How did the score differ and evolve from the score you thought you were going to write at the beginning of the process, as opposed to the score that actually became?
1: That's, That's a great question. I think what I thought I was gonna write was a very classical score. The very first thing that Gore asked me to do was to write a waltz that would form the basis of the finale of the movie. And in fact, Hans came up with a, a really stunning melody, which you hear a very small snippet of. as a sequence where you see ribbons being dropped down the turrets, and it just works so beautifully we kept it. This sort of reverence of Tchaikovsky you know, ballet and the absolute elegance and beauty of that writing that Tchaikovsky really, I think, was the main pioneer of in his ballet scores and symphonies too, but particularly those iconic ballet scores. And, and also Eugene Onegin, his opera, it's one of my absolute favorite pieces of music ever written and the elegance of his line it's unparalleled his melodic line but anyway the point is that Gore wanted it to feel like that but with this twisted niggling just something that's off and wrong because the whole concept of this place is that it on the surface appears to be a place that's healing you but it's literally a place that's killing you very slowly and it's doing so in a way where you embrace that process you think it's helping you even though you can see that so it's such a strange Kind of mindset to be in, and it was almost like going from one extreme, which is total elegance and beauty, to the other. You needed that elegance and beauty. So when the darkness unfolds, it has that context. The bigger point is, having started with that, which took a lot of iteration. You know, I was thinking that the score would be more much in that vein, but it turned out that in fact the core of the score is is not orchestral. One of the things I did was slow down at the, the sound of a muted guitar, electric guitar, to create this throbbing texture, which becomes a motif, and dividing time vertically using pulsing sounds, which feel organic, but just you have no idea what they are, was a really important sort of concept. And also solo string instruments, which are played with such fragility. These are all things which came out of experimentation. And Gore, we would spend two or three hours sometimes just talking and getting inside the tone and the detail of of the color he, he, he was trying to create on the screen. And, you know, Gore is also an unbelievable musician uh, in terms of, you know, he, he's, he's a great guitar player, but also his understanding of, of the power that music has. I'm, I'm so lucky to work with filmmakers who who have that depth of understanding. It's, it's, he would be so specific about the exact way a ritardando would, would work, you know, the exact speed of, of slowing something down before climax, things like that, you know, so you become a true partner to the filmmaker. <sighs>
0: I wanted to begin highlighting specific themes and I wanted to ask you a little bit about Hannah's theme. You and Gora had this to say about it, quote, Hannah's theme is a dangerous lullaby deceptive in its innocence, promising our characters a kind of absolution without ever delivering it. The theme comes back multiple times throughout the movie. We have it in 5-4 time and 3-4. Sometimes it has to pound you and other times it lulls you into submission. Musically and emotionally, Hannah's theme does a lot of the heavy lifting, close quote what was your process in finding a lullaby that was melodically intriguing and also casting a spell because i know you guys must have gone through thousands of iterations
1: well that lullaby was probably the first thing i wrote because as you mentioned it's so integral to the story uh, in that hannah as a character she is like the master puppeteer in terms of the initial events in the movie and ultimately she she's in control but she doesn't know that at the time the actual the way we recorded the vocal was deliberately manipulating something that was real so an incredibly talented vocalist and a friend of mine called Mary Lee who's based in the UK I had her sing that vocal, but it's she sang it slower and I think it was like a, maybe a major third lower and then we digitally made it a little faster and a little bit higher so that it sounded like a much younger version of her. But the fact that it was done electronically was was an important choice because there needs to be a little mysterious, like, is it real, is it not real? So that was like a deliberate aesthetic choice. And and we found through a lot of experimentation that it, it just was so much creepier. Manipulating an adult singer into something, a sound which sounded younger, that, that just had something about it which, which worked. We always knew that that lullaby would be, would be transformed into the waltz, And Gore's great insight is that it needed a B section, which really became another core theme in the score. It's the sort of omnipresent tune. You know, it's what you sort of hear in the wind.
0: It's my understanding that the film's final sequence, the Waltz of Fire as it's called, was one of the hardest to tackle. Quote, Gore and the editor started the editing process with the climax of the film. For two months, all I had was that to work on. Reel number seven. We needed to get that sequence right, so at least we knew what we were working towards. Close quote. What's fascinating to me subconsciously about the movie is that you have volmer's theme and hannah's theme and all these themes are kind of intertwining with each other why do you think that is so effective on an emotional level for the audience
1: i think gore wanted that whole third act to feel like one huge dance where it's a dance macabre in that you're spiraling into the depths of of hell effectively and literally in some cases on screen and i think it's like musically cathartic almost where you set up three or four main themes throughout the duration of a long movie. And then in that big climax at the end, it's like all these themes kind of whirl around each other and interact and intermingle and, and transform so that what you thought earlier was something incredibly innocuous and sweet becomes huge and dark and heavy. And, you know, the instruction you write is pesante, which means heavy in Italian. And you give that to a 12 bass players and they, they're hitting their strings with their entire weight of their arm and you get this enormous power from the orchestra. And it was... Particularly challenging, I think, because normally you would approach the third act having gone through the experience of writing the rest of the score. But Gore, was, and he was absolutely right to do this, he wanted to flip that on its head so that we spent all of the time we needed on that final moment and and just kept pushing and pushing and pushing it until it was absolutely the highest level we could make it. So then then almost the rest of the, the score had to live up to that. It was actually particularly exciting because he asked me to write the entire waltz of about 6 minutes away from picture and just he just described the general the evolution of it on screen but that that was incredibly fun and that's what took the most time
0: get a sense that you're a big fan of of classical music. But I was wondering if, as you wrote that sequence, you try and take the opportunity to to give little nods to composers that came before you.
1: Absolutely. There's a tradition, actually, weirdly, it's like almost like a rite of passage, or it used to be, where, you know, in a symphony, you'd have a scherzo movement. And often it takes the form of a waltz uh, or some kind of dance. And I I was, I guess, trying to think of it in that way. There's a, a lightness of touch and there's a quirkiness about this movie in so many ways. And there's a glint in the eye, you know, like literally the final frames have that on screen. And capturing that was really important and in, this, in that style of something which it's a dance macabre. There's a darkness to it, but there's an elegance all sort of intertwined. That was, that was the aim. There is
0: a sickness inside us, rising like the bile that lives that bitter taste to the back of our throats. It's there on every one of you seated around the table. Only when we know what ails us can we hope to find the cure. One of the things I find most fascinating about your work in general, I've heard you multiple times talk about the symmetry and the geometry in your music, which is not an approach that is immediate for anyone trying to read it. So I'll I'll give you an example as you discussed. Quote, in Shazam, our transformation theme resembles the lightning bolt emblem on the hero's suit. If you take that symbol and turn it on its side and think of it like a melody, it kind of looks like two rising octaves, which is how the theme begins. Likewise, in Blade Runner 2049, we created what we called the horse theme, a four note tune with a correlation to the four assets in the DNA chain alluded throughout the story. So, again, it's interesting. How do you try and look at music from a geometrical point of view? And how does that help you create melody that feels organic to the story? Wow.
1: Another amazing question, uh, just because it's like there's so many things I could say to that. I feel very lucky to count Hans Zimmer as my mentor and he is someone who will step away from a movie sometimes in terms of what's on the screen and just think much bigger picture about what are the underlying concepts. Is there something in this story that we can translate into a musical, not even a a theme, but just a, a kind of an attitude? And, you know, having spent a lot of time in his presence over the last few years, and you get very influenced by that. And I find myself on my own projects often thinking in that way. Because, you know, coming up with themes and concepts just as music is its a huge challenge. Because also you, you don't want to repeat yourself because every movie requires something completely fresh. I, I just really enjoy that process of almost meditative thought, you know, with the script and with just having seen the movie a couple of times, just really thinking about what is it that we could draw on here. And I think for me, the, the number one thing is that you don't want the audience to be aware of it. It's something that happens in the subtext of the score. And often I, I, would, I won't even talk about it because I don't want to give it away too much. I don't want people to listen out for something. It should just sort of be imbued in the same way as like a costume designer will choose a certain type of fabric and color scheme to mirror where that character is at that point in the story or the choices that sound design or the, the DI artists make. You know, we all have these things where in our own craft, we're trying to create an emotional environment for the audience so that they can absorb that story in the most intense way possible. So, for example in the case of um, the Shazam theme, I mean, it was, it was really hard for me because I spent probably two or three weeks trying to come up with the theme, you know, the, the big heroic tune. And, you know, when you start to think in that way, we were trying to channel that huge love I have of John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and Alan Silvestri and these, these pioneers of this heroism in symphonic film score writing. And it's very daunting. And, and actually the breakthrough was he needs two themes. We need the hero theme. And the the bigger point with Shazam is Billy Batson transforming, becoming, he's a foster kid searching for his mother with all the tragedy and melancholy, but also it's strength of character that that has. And suddenly in the spirit of just total joy, he becomes a superhero. And it's not like, okay, now I'm going to go save the world. It's like, how cool is this? And that Childlike attitude to being a superhero for me was just so so exciting musically because I could almost channel that feeling I had as a kid standing in front of an orchestra for the first time and you know getting an opportunity to work with an orchestra from a very young age. You know these are these are things I, I still remember and I have experienced them today. Just there is a sense of wonderment. Anyway, the big the bigger point is transformation. In the case of Shazam, is rising. It should create a sense of elation and. Yeah, I was just, you know, struggling to figure out what that was because also you want to make it feel like it's elemental because Shazam is an acronym of the gods, Solomon, Hercules, etc., Achilles. And, and they all have these elemental attributes, speed, agility, strength, wisdom. And as such, it's almost like the elements of the earth. Uh, so then I started thinking about what is sound. You know? you, and, and of course, whatever we hear, we, we're tapping into the harmonic series, the idea of a fundamental and harmonics above that using very clear intervals that occur in nature. And those first intervals are octaves, the same note an octave apart. And, uh, and then and then comes a fifth. So basically there was this idea of coming up with the, the transformation theme of literally two rising octaves, which is pretty much the simplest thing you could do, separated by a fifth. So I'm sort of trying to tap into that idea of it being of nature in a way, because it literally is from that harmonic series. But then it's all very well doing that, but where do you go from there? And that's when I started to realize that is this thing of the Shazam emblem has that particular shape to it and that was the it almost gave me a justification for thinking that way and gave me sort of the, the rest of that tune sort of followed from there it's again I'm giving you these very waffly answers to very simple questions but it's it's about kind of zooming right out and and just finding a clue into a score which has some kind of connection with the overall story that may not be obvious but can just kind of give you a certain kind of clue, at least gives you a jumping off point where you then go into the much more detail, detailed process of creating themes for characters and planning of the arc or structure of a score. You know, it's, it's, it's really fun to start with with a bigger concept. And, and that's something I, I feel very grateful to have sort of been exposed to with all the time I've spent with Hans because he's, he's probably the greatest at that.
0: You mentioned him, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask about your creative collaboration with, with Hans, being Hans Zimmer. And and in general, what I think is interesting in preparation for this, I was watching this amazing two-hour roundtable that you guys recorded. Just this concept of the writer's room is an approach which on a creative level can open up doors, which perhaps individually you, you may not have access to. Quote, When you work with hands, it's often about concepts. He likes to work best when it's kind of a band situation with team members that are good at playing, but are even better at listening. You can take an idea and approach it in an unexpected way, which informs your next move which is what you were just talking about. So I was just wondering, in what ways do you think your dialogue with with hands is different from all the other creative processes you may have shared with others? And could you talk a little bit about the experience of being a part of these larger groups of composers uh, where creativity is just flowing in the room?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I first met Hans, uh, I think about seven or eight years ago. He, he very kindly reached out, having heard some of my stuff. And we just very quickly made a you know, a very good friendship, actually, because we both had certain shared loves of very specific geeky things. And to this day, we love sort of geeking out over certain composers. And the bigger thing is just as a young composer, Hans is one of the most generous people, not just in terms of the potential opportunity he can create if he thinks you're ready it's more about knowledge and insight into process which is so important when when you when you train as a musician you think as a musician and you know you can spend hours and hours every day refining what you do as, as a practicing musician, as a composer, as a performer. And there's a huge sort of nobility to that and incredible tradition. And, you know, we're serving this unbelievable art form and that requires so much application. And Hans has managed to create a school of thought, actually, where you, you can use technology to execute that so efficiently that the dialogue with the filmmaker becomes very akin to the dialogue that that filmmaker might have with another department like editorial, VFX, etc. Because instead of having to wait until you hear the final score with an orchestra and prior to that you only heard piano sketches, you can hear a full mock-up using samples. And you know that's something Hans pretty much invented back in the nineties and we all do now. And what's fascinating is that that's just a means to an end because it's a given, that's the tools of your trade. For me, the, the biggest thing Working with Hans is what I was mentioning earlier, is is that thinking as a filmmaker, thinking in terms of concept and communicating with filmmakers in a way that they can feel completely at home and at ease in the environment of the music studio. So it's not like a, an unknown entity. And the, the, the fact that you will come with very strong ideas and a strong attitude as a composer, but it's possible to always adapt and, and be malleable. and. Part of that process is actually tapping into the fact that filmmaking is collaborative. You are constantly, you know, every department, you'll have a team of people working together to achieve an an aim. And what's exciting about using technology to create music is that it's possible to sometimes delegate certain things, programming, for example, getting the most incredible synth texture or some kind of percussion programming or something to someone who is just so incredible at that one thing. And then you bring that all together into this final piece of music and my studio currently is at remote control and I'm, I'm actually building a studio in Santa Monica of my own. I'll be moving there in, in a couple of months. And it's a collective of like-minded musicians, engineers, people who, who have particular skills in particular areas. And it's an incredibly exciting place to be because you'll have conversations there which are purely technical, but will inspire a process which will then eventually help your music. I think there comes a point in time where you, where it's important to feel like you move on and do it your own way. But the experience I have, I've had being at that studio, it's a, a collective of unbelievably talented people all, all under one roof. And I, I just feel, it's like, a, it's like a family. But the ultimate thing is that tradition of having a mentor. I mean, it's so important to find mentors in life. And my experience with Hans has just been so important to me in terms of just truly learning how to think like a filmmaker, how to... And also how to use technology in a way that you're not a slave to the technology but it's a tool where you're constantly pushing and pushing the boundaries of what it's capable of doing and as such inventing new techniques. I just feel very lucky to have been coming from a very classical background to be in that environment for five or six years has been just an extraordinary very important thing.
0: last stage before delivering a soundtrack is obviously the recording session and by the way i hear you talk about places like air studios and abbey road and the acoustics in these places but i can tell you have a love for the entire recording process because people should know in addition to being a composer and an orchestrator sometimes you step in to conduct about it you have this to say quote sometimes when directors step into a final recording session it's as if they discover an energy like being back on set they can reach out they can touch the music and they can in story just through the performance of those players orchestras in a way will always be part of our culture close quote so i wanted to just focus a little bit on on that section you know how do you work with your engineer and your team when it comes to recording these scores to get the best possible version of the music on the day and when you step in to conduct yourself how do you try and extract performance out of the orchestra in front of you
1: Mm. I mean, I always say th- the most important people in the room are the musicians. And these artists, they might have come from a rehearsal of Brahms in the morning and then they come in the afternoon to play your music. And as such, they're bringing another level of knowledge and expertise and, and- Artistry, which is impossible to attain with a computer with samples, and I love whenever there's time to show a scene to the orchestra before we record it so they actually watch the scene and actually sort of understand why it is I've made these choices musically. And I've been lucky enough to record I don't know how many scores more than 80 scores now with orchestra, and that's never gets old. The other thing to say is, what I've come to really understand that as a film composer, we're not delivering just music, we're delivering recordings of music and the actual production of those recordings for me has become just as important as the music itself and you know bringing in these incredible artists, engineers, music editors and and people who who support you, orchestrators through the process, it's so important to kind of for me because I've been lucky enough to have hands-on experience with all of these different parts of that process including mixing and conducting. I love to really think of my process when I'm writing a cue, you know, I'm, I'm already thinking about how it might be recorded and, and the, the style of orchestration and also how it might be mixed. It's all part of one big process. Writing for film is that you're, you're not writing for just a concept which comes and goes. You're, you're creating a recording which will be around for a long time, hopefully. And, and as such, you, you've got to have that consistent attitude all the way through.
0: I just want to quickly ask you, much like a director shoots multiple takes of a scene and then selects the best one, how do you try and choose the best take out of a music performance if you record multiple?
1: I I record a lot of takes and (laughs) tend to sometimes drive the players a little bit mad. But uh, it kind of comes from that background of conducting where when you're rehearsing an orchestra and you're really trying to get inside the intention of a performance, you know, it's not so much about just... This should be louder, or faster, or slower, or whatever. It's more about like how does that phrase work? How does where where does the line go? You know, the way the harmony works, how that balances, and all the, the, the little detail. And it's a case of just like doing a take, finding very specific things which will take it to another level, and just going through that process. And then and so often consulting with the filmmakers if they're there and and watching it against the screen, and sometimes listening against the dialogue, and just eventually you'll you'll have the performance and. You know, having done you know a lot of movies now that I've been lucky enough to work with orchestra on, that you get a you get a sort of flow and a sense of is the orchestra getting tired? Should we actually not push too hard this time? Because and, because and sometimes you know you can just without knowing it you do one more take and and it goes up ten times. As long as you give a reason and there's a, a clear intention to do another take, normally it will go to another level, which is which is useful.
0: The last projects I wanted to ask you about. We're obviously IT and, and it Chapter 2.
1: This meeting the Losers Club has officially begun. We can do this, but we have to stick together.
0: much like the losers club grow up as characters from one movie to another i was wondering what your approach what the initial thoughts of the evolution of the score from chapter one going into chapter two if there was anything you had learned from the previous one that you were eager to apply on this next one
1: Mm. i mean the biggest challenge was how can we make the themes feel like they've also matured 27 years like the characters on screen have and a big part of that was you know on a very basic level just using a a much bigger orchestra and a much richer sound, you know, so that it feels like it's gone through the trials and tribulations of of adulthood in a way. Thinking of the first score in terms of the themes as the starting point for something much bigger, much more ambitious. But ultimately it it came down to the demands of this story, which in the second part, it's such an ambitious film. It has so many demands on every department. And I, I loved the way that Andy just didn't hold back and his, his instinct as a director is always to put emotion first and particularly when it comes to the music. So it was a case of just taking those themes and finding a way to make them more complex and richer and, and bigger and the stakes are higher. Pennywise is that much more vengeful in this film and, and there's a the subtext of our main characters is more complex. You know, These are adults who've gone through this trauma and have experienced amnesia. Ultimately the story is it's anchored in the idea of friendship and love and found family and how when you come together as a group you can achieve anything really if if you have that shared purpose
0: I wanted to ask you about the role of Pennywise in, in both of these scores. Quote, in Ed Chapter 1 early on, we had the idea of using a children's play song, Oranges and Lemons, which perfectly summarizes Pennywise. Something that attempts to be sweet and playful, but really isn't. Close quote. So a moment ago we talked about Hannah's theme, and I just started realizing you know, now we're talking about oranges and lemons. Why do you think lullabies and nursery rhymes are so effective? And, and I was wondering, in what ways do you try to explore new ways of scaring audience members through music choices?
1: Is it dichotomy when you use a play song uh, or nursery rhyme in the context of something very dark, somehow just the dissonance between those two extremes it works. And in the case of Oranges and Lemons, I just remember that was a choice Andy made even before I started working on it. It was there in the temp score as a, as a choice. And you know, we were thinking, well, this could work, but there are lots of other ways, but we kept coming back to it. And the reason we did for me was, I remember hearing that song as a kid and it always creeped me out because the tune is so sweet and innocent but the, the, the words are so dark. It's about a, a child being chased down because he stole something and sacrificed. I mean, it's really crazy. It's so strange that such a sweet song could be something about something so awful. So that kind of, for that reason alone, it gave it credence in terms of a character. You know, it's like, what what's the sound of Pennywise's thinking? And, and somehow it worked. second question about how how to go down that horror horror route it's for me it's about context because you can so easily fatigue an audience with jump scares and making tension and then hit them with something hard eventually it's just like a cheap trick every every horror score i've worked on it's always been about context and finding a way to you know, enhance the way the audience feels about the characters and their situation and their backstory and their relationships so that as the story unfolds and, the, and making it feel like a thriller first so that there's an adventure aspect to the story and you're really invested in the outcome of the story, then whenever you do hit the audience hard with an adrenaline rush, whether it's a jump scare or a massive amount of tension or just simply a hugely exciting set piece of action, you feel more attached to it because you really want to know what happens. And it's not just about basically going on a roller coaster and getting hit with adrenaline every, every 10 or 15 minutes. Hi, Georgie. What a nice boat. Do
0: you want it back? Um, yes, please. You look like a nice boy. I bet you have a lot of friends. Three, but my brother's my best. Where is he? In bed, sick.
1: I bet I could cheer him up.
0: I'll give him a balloon. Do you want a balloon too, Georgie? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the dancing clown. Pennywise? Yes, me, Georgie. Georgie? Meet Pennywise. (laughs) Now we aren't strangers, are we?
1: I've been lucky enough to work on movies in in that genre of horror, which have so much depth and, and subtext to them that, when when we do go there those moments of terror and horror in music Andy's pushing so hard to go as extreme as we can you can exhaust okay so we've we've tried using 100 musicians doing this what happens if we use four musicians mic'd incredibly close and playing as if they're completely demented and then put that through a guitar pedal and some kind of crazy plate reverb which is reversed and then all these little you're just kind of constantly experimenting and finding ways to evolve the technical side of the process that's one of the most exciting things about that particular genre is that nothing's off the table a movie like it too or annabelle creation you know they they cry out for that experimental attitude
0: my last question to you is in regards to obviously your career and your legacy and what has struck me the most and what has excited me is is seeing you remain so prolific. You know, you're working on multiple projects simultaneously, sometimes even five or six films a year. The last quote for today, quote, music has always been synonymous with family. And now whenever I'm working with music, it feels like home, close quote. So I was wondering what has the dialogue been with yourself in regards to the role that music has played in your life and what has kept you so excited and busy with the many projects you've produced and the ones you're still looking to produce?
1: I think coming from a family of musicians has sort of given me that attitude where, you know, music is something that you have to work on every day and you're never done. You know, I never forget as a kid, you know, hearing my dad practice the same piece over and over for weeks on end and knocking on his door. And I'd say, don't you know it yet? <laughs> when I was about 10. i never forget what he said to me is like, Yes, of course I know, but there's always something more to discover. And this is music that has been written by someone else. And he was just trying to figure out how can he create something a little bit different. And my instinct as a musician has always been to create music, to improvise on the piano as a kid. And, And I think the connection between music and story for me has always instinctively been where I feel most comfortable. And I've always also just loved movies. That feeling of wonderment and awe you get when you watch an unbelievable piece of filmmaking is as fresh as it has been. Has always been since I was very young, and so I get inspiration from the fact that, again, like I said, you know, we stand on the shoulder of giants, and we are we're indebted to the genius of these unbelievable artists that have been writing music over the last centuries for orchestra, for experimental musicians. And it's just such a privilege to get that, that opportunity to firstly to write, but also write music which people will hear, and also be part of something so much bigger than the music. You know, being part of these iconic movies it's such an unbelievable honor for me. Uh, and one I never really dreamt of, you know, I'm, I have to pinch myself sometimes, I get to work on these projects. And I think what for me grounds it is just that memory as a kid of just the sheer amount of hard work that is required to keep your chops in shape, as it were. I'm terrible at taking time off, frankly, just because I think having seen my parents practice every day, every day, even on vacation, my dad would still take his cello with him. It's because it, it's something he loves. And there's a process of writing, which for me is sort of part of who I am. I find it very difficult not to write music. I just love it. Uh, it's very simple. I just feel so fortunate that I, I get to do it every day in a collaborative way, you know, working with other unbelievable artists. So that that's what motivates me. And who knows what's in the future? You know, that's the other thing that's exciting. It's important to pay tribute to my unbelievable wife, Missy, and my beautiful daughter, who's coming up to two, Lola, you know, and just having that, that home base where you know they understand the demands there's a tradition in my family of this but it it takes a very strong lady to put up with it frankly <laughs> you know my wife is absolutely instrumental in making this possible and and to be able to keep the amount of work that goes into writing that much music going I, you know i hope my daughter becomes a studio baby <laughs> she's uh, already uh, I, I already bought her her first synthesizer and uh, so we'll see what comes with that <laughs>
0: Ben, you have been so, so generous with your time, and and truly I cannot thank you enough for all of it. I hope people check out IT Chapter 2, and all of us are excited to see what projects lie ahead.
1: Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. and yeah, Great to talk to you.
0: And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank White Bear PR for setting this conversation up. To Ben for taking time out of his busy schedule to give us an insight into his creative process and to Eric Boss, who mixes all of our episodes. If you like the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, review and share the show with your friends. It's what allows us to bring you new conversations every month. Look for us on Facebook to receive first-hand updates on which guests we'll be speaking to next, including film director Jan DeBont and the La La Land production design team. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access.